All right, and welcome to this week's episode of On Air with Sean McStay. This week, I am thrilled to have with me Tony Chapman. Tony is a marketing legend, a fellow podcast host, and a public speaker. He's a passionate Canadian and one of the youngest people ever inducted into the marketing hall of hall of legends. Rather, Tony has built two internationally renowned communication agencies and a research firm. So I'm excited to hear about your journey. So, Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. An honor to be here. Appreciate that very much. So I gave a quick intro about you, but how would you introduce yourself? I guess I am, you know, passionate Canadian. Uh, passion's probably the word that best defines me when I get involved in something. I can become borderline obsessive. Uh, I love Canada. I love being an entrepreneur. Huge advocate for small business. Very frustrated with the political climate in Canada, and that's all parties. So uh, all of that and more. And uh just, just want to see uh, Canada continue to be the uh, the country the rest of the world looks up to. Well, I completely agree with that. I'm going to describe myself as a passionate Canadian as well, and we're definitely going to jump into some of those topics later on. Uh, but I typically start these interviews by going kind of back to the start. When you were a kid, when you were younger, what did you see yourself doing? What was kind of the career path you thought of at that point? You know, I've been a, a, a hustler. My last name is Chapman. It comes from the English word cheap man, peddler of cheap goods. And I think I've been a peddler my entire life. I was the kid that would collect empty pop bottles from my neighbors and drag them up the street for a quarter. You know, my, I had a mom that when I did a lemonade stand, she sold me lemons, rented me the pitcher, made me figure out profit margin. So I was a five-year-old that worked hard. I've just kind of been that way. I've never really been suited for working for somebody. Uh, or a guaranteed wage or, or the, you know, the chance in a 10% bonus. My entire life has been wired about going into an environment where I was truly commission only, where, you know, there was no ceiling, there was no floor. And if you worked hard and you were good at what you did, it was, you got rewarded for it. And if you chose not to, or if it wasn't suited for that task, well, you know, you had to pick up your bootstraps and find something else to do. And so that makes sense then why you would have in school and in, in university gone into uh, marketing and finance as someone who is very self-motivated, very focused on kind of working for yourself, entrepreneurial, I guess, maybe probably even before that was a, a catchphrase like it is now. How did uh, the university feel for you? How did that fit? We grew up in Quebec, so they had a, a sort of the CJAP program, which I, it didn't work for me. Took a year off, made some money. We didn't have any money as a family. And I went off to Carleton for qualifying years. So I could do one year in Carleton instead of two years in CJAP. And I really liked my year at Carleton. I went away. I had that university experience. I came back, took another year off and did night courses. And then I went back to uh, Concordia. And I really put myself through school selling radio. So I, I kind of used college as, a, as a, a place to get a degree, something that nobody in my family had had yet and made my parents quite proud. But I never really had the university experience. One of the things I really encouraged my daughters to do when they had a chance is I said, I'll, I'll help you with any university you want to go to as long as you don't stay at home. And that's the one regret because when I talk to people about their university years, they're formative, they're wonderful, they're, you know, straight character. And that's not something I really had. I just kind of treated it as a stopping ground between uh, radio sales calls. Perfect. Yeah, no, that makes uh, a lot of sense to me. Uh, moving on from there, you know, you, you went pretty quickly to starting your own business, which obviously sounds like it's right up your alley. How did you go about doing that, though? Like, you, you obviously have some education. Did you have mentors that you worked with? Uh, you know, how was that kind of that starting your first business process? 
you know, I was selling radio. You could open the trunk of my car and I'd have air dryers and calculators and necklaces and socks and I would sell to my friend's sisters. So starting a business to me was just, it wasn't daunting. Uh, and when I came up to Toronto, I worked for a company for about a year and I came up with an idea that I thought was uh, breakthrough. They didn't want to do it. So I found partners that did want to do it. And it turned out to be, that uh, you know, I, I probably had too much success too early because almost overnight we were 100 employees and I really didn't know anything about running an agency, but we sure had fun. So, you know, we still, we're still connected. I mean, that's, that's 40 years ago that people that were there are still in, in, incredibly, uh, you know, tight as 30 years ago, incredibly tight. And, um, that was the start of it. And then the second agency, I was a little more astute in terms of what value partners, financial partners brought to the table, uh, how to organize the business a little differently. But I, I've always been entrepreneurship, being on a tightrope, starting a business, trying to figure things out. Uh, signing leases, understanding the margin, uh, understanding where value-added pricing can be is just something that I love to do. And when I, every time I've had a shot at a new tightrope, as daunting and as scary as it is, it, as long as I can take some of the experiences from my past and combine them with some of the new sort of living algorithms and make it work, that, that to me is the most exhilarating times in my career. Something those things I look, look back and think about the fondest. That's really interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, you sold your first agency and started your second agency. What was the impetus for that? Were you, did you change directions at all or? Oh, I sold the first agency that at the time, uh, it was 19, uh, 1988, 89. And Britain had found a loophole in the taxation system that allowed them to buy creative companies in a more efficient manner. And that's where we saw the beginnings of Asachi and Sachis and WPPs. They could go and, and swallow up Madison Avenue. Uh, and until they changed that tax loophole, they went, they did really become the world power in advertising. And a British firm came knocking at my door, Michael Peters Group, and they offered me $28 million uh, for my company. Most of it was paper. And nine months later, they were bankrupt. And I, besides, I had very little to show for that other than a lot of paper. So uh, it was a great lesson in life. Probably one of the most important ones I've ever had in terms of any time where I've chased financial wealth and made it uh, triumph over intellectual wealth and emotional wealth, things that stimulate me, things that I, I feel like I belong, excited about. And anytime I put those aside and chase money, it's always backfired. And that was probably the best lesson I've ever had in life, not not to get swept up on on uh, big numbers and, and all that come with it. Yeah, I think that, well, I mean, that's a fantastic lesson for people to learn. When you, you, you made that shift away from kind of, you know, the big agency that started quickly, you had mentioned that, you know, you kind of learned some things from that. The second agency, you said you were a little bit more astute with how you set that up. How did you go about kind of trying to not make some of those same mistakes again? Well, when the company went bankrupt on me, what I left behind is everything I needed to make a living. We were in the business of internal corporate communication. So we had slide cameras and video cameras and video projectors and slide projectors. And we had millions of dollars worth of assets. And none of that, that was all locked inside, even though my business was still very viable. This British firm had overbought and overextended and with it, the doors were locked. So I had to start something. So I started it out of a, a friend's art studio and one of the greatest things that happened to me is Roger Baranowski, who's not with us anymore, but called me up and said, hey, I heard uh, you had some bad luck and you're on your own right now. I said, yeah. He says, can you still do videos? I said, sure, I could produce your video. It's great. I'm sending you over a check for $50,000 because you need some cash to get going. And I'll brief you on the video next week. 
And that was an eye opener that even though I didn't have all the stuff I needed and all the employees that I relied on, what I did have was uh, client relationships, creative. And out of that little art studio that first week, I sold uh, that Pepsi project and LCBO project. That first year, I made $600,000, but I didn't bring partners in. I, I owned the business. Other than my accountant, who I gave a very tiny piece of the business to because I couldn't afford the pair, I kept the entire equity in the business. And throughout the entire time that I had Capital C, uh, I never had less than 75% of the business. So I realized that giving away equity early for a business that you're confident is going to succeed, it might get you off the ground a little bit quicker. It might make you feel a little more secure because you've got cash flow, but it is being the most expensive capital uh, you've ever taken on. Its interest rate will be thousands of percents because you'll be paying dividends on that for the rest of your life. And that was a great lesson. Second lesson is I kept it small. A very good friend of mine who helped mentor me through this said, you know, Tony, you're going to be, you're going to have all the money you need in your life. You, you know how to make money, but you're, you're a parent. You've got two kids. Spend time with those kids. And I kept that agency under 20 people for the 10 years. And I spent a lot of time walking my kids to school and making them lunches and putting little notes in their lunch boxes. And today, two, two, by far two of the closest people in my life, not just because they're daughters, just because they are close, are, in fact, my daughters. And I, I say to anybody that's building an entrepreneur, it's addictive, it's time-consuming, uh, you need to be obsessive, you need to go in every corner. And if you do that at the time when you're raising a young family, realize that one of the two is going to compromise. So be very careful that you don't put your family second because they only come around once. Yeah, that's super valuable. And I think you hear that from a lot of people after the fact. It's it's good that you, you know, are able to figure that out through that good mentor uh, during that phase. Talking about marketing, maybe a little bit more in general now, obviously your your, your firms were uh, very well renowned. Uh, you had a number of uh, highly successful videos, uh, some viral videos as well. From the creativity side of things, I guess the, the general question to ask is, where do you get your ideas from? But how do you go through that creative process? Because you strike me as someone who has both the creative process and a business mindset, which is a little bit different from a lot of creatives. So what's, what's your creative process like? It's, it's a great question. I really believe that uh, a great partnership with creativity is to have somebody in a strategic-minded creative person so they understand and value creative. And a creative mind is a strategic person. So they're not just so wedded to their ideas. They, they, they. And our firm was called Big Ideas That Work. It's capital C. But the idea was we can create any big idea, but will it work? Will it sell cases? Will it engage the consumer? And where I was strongest at was two things. One, the insight. So understanding uh, an itch, uh, something that was going on in the consumer's minds. Consumers worried about running out of money in their 80s. You know, they'd frame it as, I don't want to eat dog food in my 80s. We're going to enjoy retirement in their 60s. So that led to a product called Money for Life, where we guaranteed people a paycheck every month for the rest of their life, for Sun Life. And that thing was very successful based on that insight. So insights were something that I was really, uh, I think, good at really identifying unmet needs, where the consumer was on the journey, what obstacles they were facing. What rungs on the ladder do they want to climb? And the second thing was as a great synthesizer. I had some phenomenal creative people in my company and they would bring 10 or 15 ideas, sketches and thoughts. And I was pretty good at sort of saying, you know, I, I, number two and number seven synthesized together with a sprinkling of number 11. If we put that together, 
that could really become something very powerful. And that's what I did quite well. So I was, you know, we, we were a very collaborative agency and I worked with a guy, uh, especially Bennett Klein, who was, we were so in sync. Uh, we would trade, uh, we we're both very early birds and we would trade things at five in the morning and we would, we could compress a brief and come back out. I often said to Bennett, we can't come back to the client with this tomorrow because they'll think there's no value to it. Because they'll think there's, they, we haven't worked hard enough on it. And that's how we worked. But marketing changed in my watch. So what I'm talking about was when marketers were hired to spend budgets. And they would come in and go, I have a $3 million budget to spend or a $5 million budget. And within that budget, they would always have some discretionary money to experiment, to try things differently. And that's where we kind of fed as an agency. You know, they, they, most of our clients had a big BBDO or a big Ogilvy. And, but on my watch, marketing went from spending money to having to invest it. And all of a sudden, instead of, let's talk about that idea and how can we make it bigger? Or let's get other people involved. The question suddenly became, will it work? What kind of return? And marketers were more interested in 1% growth than they were going after 10% growth because if you went after 10% growth, you could fail because you're trying things new. And when that happened, I realized it was time for me to move on, that that world wasn't going to come back, that data analytics, which is all incredibly important to bring science and art together. I celebrate it. But at the same time, other than, other than a handful of ads that aren't part of charities and not-for-profits, I would say that most of the stuff I see out there is very safe. It's very correct. It's, it dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. And where we're seeing now the creativity is not so much in the content or the film or the ads, you know, it, it might be in something completely different, a pop-up or uh, a new package design or something very different. And, in, and again, in my watch, people would spend $3 million behind one idea. Today, they want to spend $300,000 behind 3 million ideas. You know, all these little bits and pieces. So I, I, I hit the agency world at the right time for my brain. I wouldn't have been successful today. Because I wouldn't, I, to me, I would have been suffocated by the, the need to, to, to get affirmation and to mitigate risk. And I'm not saying painting every client that way, but I'd say the industry that way is certainly to me not something I'm suited for. Okay. That, that kind of leads me to two questions. So the first one goes back to your first uh, point that you were making. When you're looking at, when you're looking at how you basically researched or found the information or found the needs of those clients. You're talking about, you know, identifying the needs of those clients. And this was before all the big data and analytics mm -hmm. and everything is what it is now. How did you go about that? Was it intuitive to you? Did you have research tasks? Like, how, how did you figure that out? You know, it, it, we had some great strategic thinkers in our agency and everybody approached things differently. I am a massive fan and believer in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, his whole theory of human behavior. And in his theory of human behavior, he basically said that consumers are on a constant journey. They're looking for safety and security. Now, some people just might be looking for a shelter tonight. Other people's safety and security is I want to have enough money to retire at 50, but they're looking for safety and security. They're looking for love and they're looking for belonging. And boy, we certainly saw that through the pandemic. 
But it's not just romantic love, but it's belonging, being part of something. And we see how social media has turned that to their, their advantage and humanity's disadvantage because they're now sending you into these little camps where you're with just all like-minded people. Third thing is we search for a higher purpose. We're looking for intellectual rewards. We're looking for craft. We're looking that blacksmith wants to shoe a horse so that his friend's horse walks away without a limp. Other people might want to write the perfect code. And then finally, if you're blessed with luck and fortune and time, we're looking to self-actualize, to understand our meaning of life. I, I believe that everybody in the world is on a series of journeys and your ability to identify that journey and to say, how can I help that person get to where they want to go is where great insights come from. And when marketers fail, it's because they believe Coke is it. They believe they're the ch Pepsi, they're the choice of the new generation. They believe that by having a celebrity drink their brand, that positive affirmation is going to wash over. Or I'm one that says, if you can be truly transformative in somebody's life, by the way, very few brands can be, but the brands that can truly transform life and livelihood, that can really help me get, that can be my Yoda. Those are the ones where marketing can do its most magic. And, and you just have to come up with the insights and ideas that put you right on that path and open your arms to that consumer and have the humility and servitude to realize they're the hero of the story. You're not. That's a really powerful way to put it. And it makes, it makes sense when you say it like that, but I'm sure it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to come to. Uh, the second part of my question uh, leads into actually, th thankfully, the second part of what you were saying with the change in marketing now. And I think that there's upcoming generations, you know, my generation to the next generation, the next after that, that are becoming very savvy to marketing, that are becoming very, like they know when they're being sold to at, you know, they know all of that. And, and I wonder what your thoughts are about these safe marketing campaigns that you see versus maybe some of the more unsafe or more out there social media and influencer marketing that has really become, you know, powerful the last few years. I'll break that down in a couple of places. Where I am fascinated is how Zach O'Malley Greenberg, who's an upcoming guest on my show, talked about how athletes, actors, and artists hack Silicon Valley. And instead of just, you know, singing for the suffer, they own the table. And they become multi-billionaires because they're trading their influence and their ability to invest and their audience uh, for sizable stakes in companies, you know, uh, Jay-Z put $3 million in an Uber and, you know, today he's a billionaire. So that's the first thing. The influencer marketing is they're dictating who do they choose to influence. So that world is very, is turning on, on a dime. Second thing is, I think that the danger for all of us is we're going to get more hyper-personalized with the onslaught of advertising. And it'll be based on how we think, feel, and behave uh, the colors that we like, what the headlines we approach, the things that make us twitch. And more and more, AI is going to take over the creative process. So they will be fly fishing in every day as much as you think you can avoid that ad. You'll be that fish and that suddenly that fly disappears and you'll snap at it. And because that fish is just being designed for you at the exact moment when you're hungry, at the exact angle where your eyes looking. So I think that that, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but I think the art of advertising and marketing, the, the, the madman of Madison Avenue, the, you know, the, the Arlene Dickinsons and, and Terry O'Reilly's and 
Serge Rancor, the people that are, that are really grew up with, you know, Bill Durans of the world grew up practicing the craft, the Judy Lewis's the strategic objectives, people that are really gifted at what they do are going to have, like everything else in humanity, uh, have to find a way to fast adapt and maintain their relevancy against this machine gun volley of highly personalized ads, content created at the speed of life for the individual. So it's going to be interesting to see that unfold over the next uh, 10 years. And is that all going to belong to the people that own the, the, uh, the eyeballs and the data? You know, is, it, is this going to, will Google and Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn run the table on all of that? Because much like Loblaw says to Frito-Lay, we control the consumer. This is the price we're willing to pay for your chips. If you don't like it, you can leave. It might possibly be the same thing with those big data companies that go, the only way you're going to build a fly fish is on our platform through, through the creative that we create with our AI. Who knows? Yeah, I think that's going to be very interesting. And I think that the concept of uh, how much of your data do you personally own and and how, you know, if certain things are doing in the European Union are starting to influence that, you know, some of these even big tech companies are being affected by that. I think that's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out over the next 10 years. The pace is happening so quickly, and we're seeing it even with Ukraine and Russia. Hackers, we don't even know where they are, are taking down Russia's airwaves. So it's... it. it the concept of controlling your country and, and with boundaries is giving away to commerce happening in the clouds. And that's business without boundaries. So I think we're, it'll be interesting to see just how far we can keep up. If anything, I think there might be a generational backlash where technology becomes very much like the old telephone, one-on-one versus one-to-many. It might, it might be something like that that changes things that makes people realize that they, they need to reach audiences in a different way. That makes sense. Looking uh, f- for you, you know, after you've, you've gone through your, your time in the marketing world and uh, achieved a great amount of success, uh, you do a lot of public speaking now, and then you also, of course, have your podcast. Uh, what was the impetus for you in, in starting a podcast? So the podcast came about, so when I stopped 10 years ago, when I quit the agency business, I had no idea what I was going to do kind of like it that way. I didn't know what tightrope to get on. And people said, you go and teaching and stuff. But I started doing public speaking. As I started doing that, I realized I really enjoyed the stage. But I also looked in the mirror and seeing you know, an aging white guy. And so I repositioned myself as a conference host, more of a journalist on stage that could ask questions, interview speakers, and kind of be the connected thread to the event so that age wouldn't be as much of a factor. You know, the young guy should be talking about the future, not the old person. And that went really well. And then when COVID hit, I had 15 gigs canceled. I said, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to have to find a new tightrope. And I had this little podcast and I thought, you know what? Like why I'm sitting on the sidelines and I thought it'd be for a couple of weeks. Maybe I could put a series together and help small business because they're going to get hit so hard. And I went and I pitched this to RBC and they grabbed it immediately. Say, yeah, let's do it. We don't need to talk about RBC, but you could put out great content to help small business owners. It's the right thing to do. And that turned into, it turned into an entire year project. They just signed me up for another year. It's, it's migrated beyond small business to ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's my labor of love. I get to talk to incredible people. Some people are celebrities and Olympians and world leaders and others you've never heard of. 
when they all face difficult circumstances, they've also got life lessons. And their their stories of positivity and possibility to me is what is needed to counter the storm of negativity. And it's even where I'm I I turned off all my writing about why I, I I'm not happy with the way things are and instead focusing on what if they were this way. And I just really believe that this positive discourse is something that's so really needed out there. And that's what I'm doing with the podcast. That's fantastic. Uh, something about your podcast that I really admire is the fact that it's, it's, they're not only all very interesting people, uh, it's also a very extremely diverse group of people. Is that something that you are purposefully doing or is it just because you're looking for interesting people and they just happen to be uh, a very diverse group? Like, how do you manage both of those things? That's a great question. You know, I, when I look back at my agency, we were always, you know, diverse as people labeled it. I, I, I always just hired wonderful people. I was not a woman and ever worked for me. I got paid less than a man. There's not anybody that felt, I hope, and if there is, I hope they come forward and let me apologize, but never felt that they were at a disadvantage because their sexuality, their gender, and their ethnicity. So I've just kind of been that way. You know, I came from a, a very poor upbringing. I probably have a bit of a chip on my shoulder for the, uh, the little guy. And uh, I just love interesting people. And I reach out to everybody that I, I just did. Tarak uh, had had, who came from uh, Syria refugees coming up. And one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard. And he's got a better lens on why we should love Canada than any Canadian I've ever met. And he's been here a couple of years. So I said, I'm not really, I, there's no, there's nothing calculating on it. It just happens. And sometimes I look at like the last 10 weeks and go, wow, that was a really interesting group of people. And other times, you know, it's just, it's just, there's so many wonderful stories out there. And I hope I get to do this for years to come. Yeah, I really admire the fact that you, you you do promote so many different stories and there's not kind of a, it's not stuck in a groove like a lot of podcasts and a lot of uh, media, uh, you know, performances are. Speaking about the years to come, what's your goal for your podcast? Is it just continuing to, to meet interesting people and tell their stories or do you have kind of a bigger goal? You know, I, I think to just continue to do, find a way to let more people listen because these stories aren't about me, but they will inspire They'll make people feel good. There'll be conversations people have at the dinner table. There'll be conversations between parents and daughters, you know, and parents and sons if they listen to, you know, Chris Hadfield talking about how his parents encouraged his dreams or Vanessa, uh, Victoria Peltier being burnt by a cigarette by her mom and, fi and, and finding love with her foster mom. Like, it's just incredible stories. So if I could keep doing that, I don't really, we'll continue to look at finding, it's on a, it's a radio show as well, it's on an, uh, nine markets. Could it be a television show? Maybe, but then it'll be too staged. Could I turn it into lessons in life and chatter that matters? Absolutely. All right. So we've talked a little bit about your career and what you're doing right now. I want to maybe pick your brain about a few bigger uh, picture items. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen some posts that you've made recently um, about kind of this increasingly polarized and divided world that we're in. And uh, your one of your posts, I thought, put it very nicely that we need to be searching for a middle ground. I have kind of two parts of the question for you. The first one is, what does the middle, what does finding a middle ground look like for you? That's a great, another great question. I mean, social media is pushing us into these little castles where you look around and you go, everybody agrees with me. Well, like-minded people listen to like-minded content, validating each other, and then becoming very angry and negative at the people in the other castle because they don't agree with them. And the middle ground is being turning into a moat. 
And social media makes a lot of money that way because that keeps you active and passionate and angry and emotive and you, and, and they steal your time with it. So the middle ground is where, let's take this trucker convoy. My belief is that we met the trucker convoy on the middle ground and looked around and realized not everybody was there to burn down parliament. Not everybody was wearing a Confederate flag. In fact, the vast majority of people were just very frustrated that they felt the government was imposing so much on their liberties. And if that, and if they, and if the government had listened to that and said, I, I hear what you're saying. Now I want you to listen to my position. Running the country is never being tougher. I, I'm trying to keep lives, safe lives. It's a brand new pandemic. We're making big bets. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes, continue to make a lot of mistakes, but. You know, I hear what you say about these three things. And how about if we move positions in these two and you gave another 90 days on the third one? In doing so, I think we would have averted the blockade in Ottawa, money being seized as a democratic nation, which to me is, I I still shake my head. That could have completely collapsed our entire banking foundations because anybody that had money in that bank could have moved it outside of Canadian banks. I mean, it was just, it was, it's such a, because we sat in two corners and refused to, to realize that there was a middle. I look at kids in a playground playing and they might argue over what to play, but within a couple of minutes, they're all playing a game. And you might argue, well, there's the dominant, the alpha, that woman's the leader of the gang. She gets to say what's happening. But in general, they figure things out. And I think most of society, when we advance, we did so because there was a middle ground, because we found a way to come to terms and create policy that wasn't perfect for anybody, but was a lot better than where we were. And we've lost that. And I blame social media. I blame politics because 33% gets you elected in this country. So you can divide to keep your 33% happy. You can alienate 66% or a vast majority of them, and it doesn't matter. So I blame our politicians for not trying to unite our country. I don't mind. I don't mean just liberal. I mean, right across the board. And I blame ourselves because we get we, our confirmation biases are such that even data and science can't move us from what we believe is a, a rightful point of view. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And that leads to the second part of my question for that is, is how do we find other people that are willing to look for a middle ground? Or how do we encourage other people that are looking for a middle ground? And we can use the trucker protest as an example. You know, if, if, if I'm at the trucker protest and I see someone defacing or defecating on the tomb of the unknown soldier, I see someone, you know, uh, proudly carrying a, a Nazi flag, um, that that's not maybe a person that I'm going to be. And those are a very big, a very small minority of the people that were there. Uh, but if I see those people, I might not approach them to find a middle ground. But how do I engage with the other people who are maybe willing to? So it's a, it's another great point because on, on every one of those two castles that I talked about, or those four castles, there's always people on the fringe. There are always the rabid, the lunatics, the people that you walk on the other side of the street for. But when our media paints them as the majority, That's a disgrace because they're not the majority. The vast majority of people there are just looking for, they have an unmet need. They're frustrated. They're they're looking for some solutions. So I don't talk to the person defecating on the statue. Rest them, put them in jail, give them uh, access to mental health. Same thing goes with the person wearing the Confederate flag. Same person goes to the socialist that wants to burn down every business building, every business in the country because they... The business people are stealing from the people. I don't, I don't pay any attention to them. I don't care about them. I ignore them. 
it's the vast majority and they go, what can we do to make a better Canada? What can we do to, to prosper? How do we find a way that instead of burying the next generation in insurmountable debt, we set them up for success? One of the best stories I ever did was with a, a farmer and a farmer said, you know, my role in life is not to farm the soil, to leave the soil in better shape for the next generation. Well, how do we apply that same mentality in Canada? How do we leave this country in better shape for the next generation versus what can this country do for me today? Yeah. So my next question then is, is maybe a little bit uh, broad of a question to answer all at once, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. I look at politics in Canada right now and I see an absolutely massively massive group of people that have no representation in the way the political system works right now. And I think a lot of it is because of what you had said about how one party can pander to a relatively small amount of people uh, on the extreme fringe of what they believe in and and get get elected. How do we create a, a political party or how do we adapt a political party to address the the middle, the, the middle ground that we've been talking about? Number one, no foreign dollars are allowed into our election, period. There's no foreign influence in our democracy. It, it, it's, it, if you accept a dollar from for, a foreign party, you no longer can run as a politician. If a media accepts ads paid for by a foreign policy, they lose their media license. That's the first thing we've got to do because we're being influenced in ways that we have we have just no idea. Second thing is we've got to start thinking about, is the party system still working for us? You know, is, do we need a reset in our democracy? Because it's been a long time since we've had a, in, in North America, someone of the stature of a Gandhi or a Nelson Mandela, JFK, you could argue, maybe a Paul Martin, uh, would be the closest I'd say in Canada. It's been a long time. Right now we're getting people that are for the party and allegedly for their pocketbook. I don't know if that's true or not, but we've got to get back to finding a politician that puts Canada first. We got to look at Canadians and say, listen, uh, the only way out of this is to be the most environmentally responsible in terms of how we harvest our natural resources. But we need to bring those natural resources because that's an asset. And every dollar of non-renewable resources we take out of the ground, let's use prior to fund a new economy. We got to be very smart with our strategic immigration and bring in people that are there that are going to be, that really want to contribute and, and contribute to the Canadian dream. And all of these things have got to happen uh, in this country. And the only way we're going to do it is to realize that if we simply uh, vote for our party and the fear that even though we're not happy with the way things are run, the next people coming in could be even worse. You know, the liberals, for example, are masters at painting the conservatives, the fringe of the conservative party as the majority. You know, they're going to take away your gay rights. They're they're against gay marriages. They're against... Uh, pro-choice. Uh, they're masters at doing that. And for good reason, people go, well, I can't bring those people in because I don't want to bring in, I don't want to take civil rights. I don't want to take uh, gay rights back 25 years. Got to get rid of all that. And really, you know, you really wanted to wave a magic wand. You're, in your election, there's six or seven questions that are of utmost importance to the country. And you have to answer those seven questions in a video. And you have to answer you could pick one question that hasn't been asked if you need it to shape your party. And we vote based on that. And we get rid of the elections and the slandering and the pandering and the partisan sponsorships and the dollars that pour in and unions taking out advertising. I mean, what is a union doing 
taking out advertising for a political candidate, knowing that whoever that the, the person that wins the election is going to negotiate their union contracts. It's a massive conflict of interest. All of this has to change. It's not rocket science, but you, you know, ingrained in all of this is that people are reluctant to change because there's a lot of people that are prospering because of the political system. You know, anybody that works for the public sector in Ottawa is a multi multi millionaire based on the value of their pensions. Multi multi millionaires. Yep. And, yep. and they retire with fully indexed pensions. So inflation doesn't concern them. They retire with, uh, fully indexed health benefits, survivor benefits, uh, and it's all guaranteed by the taxpayer. So all of this has to change, but what person in Ottawa is ever going to agree to change their pension plan? So I, it, 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 it might happen, but not in a way that's calm. It might happen with one day if you, we hit a fiscal cliff. And if anybody's been in business and hit a fiscal cliff, you know, you have to make mission critical decisions to save what you can. And I yeah. know that sounds dire, but I'm not a mathematician, but I just can't believe we could continue to take on this debt year after year and not one day feel the pain of it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, uh, I, I tend to approach a lot of things from a, a yeah, I'd say a fairly business mindset, if you will. And you look at businesses in the last 20 or 30 years, and they've had to make massive adjustments to how we do business. Like how many, how many middle-level managers do you know that have a, an assistant now? Like, like zero practically, you know, in, in private business, you know, and how many even senior managers have a team of assistants and, and everything else? Very, very few. And our politicians, all still do. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of, you know, if you talk about lean manufacturing or Six Sigma or however you want to put it, that the business world has had to go through over the last 30 years to remain competitive. I think our government needs to do the same thing. So I, I'm on the same page. There. How many infrastructure projects have gone grossly overspent? I'm not talking about 10%. Double, triple, five-year delays, destroying businesses and get to the end and realize you didn't measure correctly. You have to do it again. You know, and yet the same people stay in and, and make the same decisions and the, the same infrastructure companies donate to this, to parties, all this stuff has to change and it, will it, I, I, you know, I don't know if anybody has the ability to change it. The, the unions that are there to protect people and, and did the most amazing job for labor for a century, took a, a wonderful job are now, I would argue demonstrably in influencing politics in this country. Yeah. So, well, and, and, and not in all ways, but maybe in some ways approaching obsolescence with, you know, that we have a labor code. We have a lot of rules in place in Canada, uh, not so much with our neighbors to the south. They still have a very employer focused uh, labor code. Yeah. But in Canada, we, we are a little bit less that way. Um, and I think people could probably get by with a little bit less uh, protection, so to speak, from the, the, yeah. the labor code. You know, if people are... Are, are staying with us on this. I want them to know I am so bullish on Canada. 38 million people. We have, we share a border and a language with the world's greatest economy. We have vast amount of intellectual resources to the most educated population in the world. We are, uh, we can attract the top immigrants in the world because of our brand. We have fresh water and energy for 300 years. All it needs is leadership. And it needs the will of the public not to shrug the shoulders because every election, more things are put in their trough. You know, next is going to be free pharmacy or universal income. And realize that if we just did a, a, a good reset, maybe take a decade of pain, we will be the most enviable. We will be the most, the luckiest people in the world would be the people that are allowed to live in Canada or born in Canada. 
So that's how I feel. So don't, this isn't about the skies falling. This is just about we have not been led and managed in a responsible way. And I blame that on the voters because we, we tend to vote with, for shiny objects and where we should be voting for strategy and policy and solutions. And we're not. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, the last decade, especially voter turnout has been getting lower and lower. And we have a less engaged populace with the electoral system. Um, Why are they voting with their phone? Like what? I can bank with my phone. Yeah. I can trade stocks with my phone. Why aren't we voting with our phone? You know, voter turnout is because to the new generation where people are lining up and then put the taking this little thing and tearing it with a pencil that they haven't held in their whole life and putting it on a thing and stuffing it in a box. I mean, you know, we got to rethink a lot of things and including proportional voting where people live. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's lots of stuff to do. I think what we see, what we're watching in Ukraine is a leader emerge and democracy reminding ourselves what a real leader is and yeah. not going over and doing speeches and, and, Photoshops with other leaders, but somebody that's in there saying, I don't want to ride. I need ammunition. That to me is, is the, that, that's the democracy that dictators feel fear. That's the democracy that the vast, the handful of people that are getting so vastly wealthy fear because it's putting power back in the hands of the, the voter. And that, that's the kryptonite. Freedom is the kryptonite of dictators and freedom is the kryptonite of people that control the data in this world. And I think what we're the silver lining and what we're seeing in Ukraine might be the kind of leadership that we're going to demand in this country. I sure hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for a leader that's as passionate about Canada as, as the current leaders are about getting reelected. That's, that's, yeah. that's my goal. So moving on from politics a little bit, Looking at what you're, you know, we talked about your podcast, talked about things that you're doing. What's the next 10 years look like for Tony Chapman? What's, what's your goal? What's your dream? So I'm building a, a property down in Costa Rica in a very small yoga surfing town. Uh, I took up surfing in my sixties. I, this is one of the five blue zones of the world where people live healthy into their hundreds. Yeah. It's got a great restaurant vibe. It's a little town called Santa Teresa. And part of what we're building out is a commercial space. And I'm hoping over the next 10 years that I can take some of the commodities in Costa Rica that are sold for pennies on the pound. Uh, we have an incredible honey down here by a small bee that they say has the efficacy of one of the superfoods and maybe find a way for Costa Ricans to turn it into their own brand. And maybe my, maybe my gift to the marketing world down the road will be to, to, to help a couple of Costa Rican, uh, kids and with some young, smart e-commerce people find a way to, uh, to build their own brands and trade up the value chain versus just be, uh, treated like a commodity. Wow. That's pretty exciting sounding next tightrope for you. Yeah. Very cool. We're very excited about it. And we got another idea that we're, uh, we think this is going to be a haven for digital nomads that I can't share with you yet, but it's a pretty exciting idea as well. I got lots on my plate. I'm busy and I'm having time having fun. And listen, I, I, uh, down here, I go to bed at nine and I get up at five in Toronto. I go to bed at 11. I get up at five. So it's amazing what those extra uh, two hours is doing for me in terms of, uh, uh, energy. Fantastic. 
Well, when I get towards the end of the podcast, I always ask the same two questions. Uh, the first question is if you could pick one thing for the listener to walk away with today that they really internalize, uh, what would you pick? Your ballot matters. Make it intelligent. Uh, get beyond the shiny objects and really focus at who is offering you policy, not just for the present, but vote on behalf of the next generations to come, like the farmer who wants to leave the soil in better condition, leave this country in better condition for the next generation. That would probably be the the, uh, the takeaway. Well, I like it. Uh, the last question is always a personal interest question for me. I read and collect a lot of books. So if you were going to suggest a book right now, personal or professional, which one would it be? There's a book, it's a, it's a heavy read. I'm reading in bits and pieces, but it's called Humankind. And it's about this researcher's belief that inherently, Humans are kind people. We're not Lord of the Flies. We're not the first to jump out of a, a sunken ship. We, we really do care about each other. And I think it's, we're seeing that right now with the way we're, we're dealing with Ukraine. So I would say that is uh, probably the book I would be looking at. And more as a reference when you get down, when the storm and negativity, when media is sitting at the hairpin turner, hoping for the Confederate flag picture and ignoring you know, the 10,000 lovely Canadians that are just out exercising their democratic right. When you're, when you're seeing that, pick that book up and realize that uh, positivity and possibilities of humans time and time again have overcome periods in history where it seems like we're in our darkest hour. And I think that's, uh, that's why I would suggest that book. Fantastic. Let me check that out. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. For everyone listening and watching, I'm going to put links down below to Tony's podcast, as well as uh, him on LinkedIn. He posts some really insightful content there. And with that, uh, Tony, I hope you have a great rest of your day. i got to tell you, you're, uh, I've done a number of these. You're an exceptional interviewer. And uh, you, you're, uh, so I congratulate you for that because it's uh, you did an, a fantastic job. And uh and you let me rant when I was ranting, but uh, I know that's the magic of editing. You can take some of that and get it into some, uh, hopefully some coherent uh, conversation. We'll talk to you soon. We'll do it for sure. Let's chat soon, man. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening to On Air with Sean McStay. If you have any questions for the guests, contact me on social media or reach out on my website, www.onairwithseanmcstay.com. Have a great rest of your day.